Welcome to the show. The premise of this conversation is based on a question that Aaron Leggett, the president of the native village of Aklutna and the senior curator of Alaska history and indigenous culture at the Anchorage Museum, and I are curious about. What happens to Alaska when oil is no longer economically viable for the economy of the state? Aaron says that his hope for the future is that people will have a better understanding about the role oil plays in Alaska that although production is in decline, we can take the wealth that's been created with it and invest it into Alaska's education system in order to prepare future generations for the new realities and challenges that await them. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at Patreon dot com slash crude magazine that's patreon.com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you i want to thank everyone subscribed at the company man tier these are the people who have subscribed to the crude patreon for 50 dollars or more trina duber seward brewing company the grind coffee shop in juno Derek adolf sharon liska Jake Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Borderline Legacy. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers, baby onesies and more. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Permanent Fund co-creator and state legislator Cliff Grow says that, for decades, oil has been the primary driver of Alaska's economy and fiscal system. However, oil production has been in decline for about 35 years. In the late 1980s, the state had more than 2 million barrels of oil going through the Trans-Alaska Pipeline system every day. Today, it's well under 500,000 barrels a day. Right now, many people are betting the economic future of Alaska on finding another Prudhoe Bay oil field. There's the Pika oil field, the Willow Project, and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR. There are arguments for and against each of these projects. Tim Bradner has been writing about Alaska's natural resources since 1966. He's also the co-owner of the Alaska Legislative Digest. He doesn't believe oil in Alaska will ever completely go away, because oil fields have a way of producing for decades. But oil will become less and less important to Alaska's economy. Ultimately, he's hopeful for the future, though, that there are other things that will come along to stimulate the economy. Commercial fishing and tourism, for example. He says that if we're smart, we'll use the permanent fund to sustain our public services and diversify the economy, meanwhile educating young people and giving them a reason to stick around. 
So here they are. Aaron Leggett, Cliff Grow, and Tim Bradner. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! In general terms, what does oil mean to Alaska? And maybe, Tim, you go first. Well, it, it is the, uh, it's, our, it's our milk and honey because we depend on oil and we have for quite some time for the bulk of our uh, income to run our state government. And because of that, we can get along without taxes up here, at least state taxes. People do pay you know, municipal property taxes, but there's no state income tax and no, um, you know, no state property tax. Um, and we have a we have a permanent fund of saved oil revenues that we're now using the income from to help run our state government. But that's that's really oil revenues too in a different form. It's investment revenues of um, oil income that we made before and we put into the stock market. Mm-hmm. So also, you know, oil is a, a source of uh, a lot of good jobs on the North Slope. It's not a major employer in, in numbers of people, but it pays. It's 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 the best paid industry in the state. How about you, Cliff? Well, oil has um, been uh, for decades uh, what has made both the uh, economy and the fiscal system of our state go. Uh, but that has changed in recent years. We uh, The oil production in Alaska has been in decline for more than 30 years. Hmm. Um, in the late 19, uh, now about 35 years, getting close, 35 years. Uh, in the late 1980s, the state uh, had more than 2 million barrels of oil go through the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System every day. And there was you know, more than 2 million barrels a day produced in, uh, oil produced in Alaska. Now that's well under 500,000 barrels a day. And some days this summer, it was closer to 400,000 barrels a day than 500,000. Uh, and that has been a big problem for both our state economy and our fiscal system. Uh, as Tim just pointed out, there has been a change since 2018 in the state's fiscal system, which I would generally and broadly define as the way the state um, uh, collects, uh, spends, and saves money. Uh, it's a pay for uh, services and, and, uh, and things provided by the state of Alaska. Uh, but starting in 2018, in calendar 2018, uh, the state of Alaska switched to a system called the percent of market value system where the state is spending um, sustainably, uh, if it follows the system, uh, a percentage of the permanent fund uh, earnings uh, to pay for state services. Uh, and in some years, that has been substantially more than the oil income directly, oil revenues directly hmm. uh, since then. And so now um, our state you know, needs to continue to make the adjustment uh, to the fall, what's sometimes called the Prudhoe curve, which is the wrong long run decline, first rise and then decline in uh, oil production um, in our state. Hmm. Aaron, I think you know what oil means to our state, as Tim and um, Cliff have, have pointed out, is it's a blessing and a curse for our state. I think it has dominated the politics of our state for pretty much all of you know. Uh, us being a state. Maybe in the first few years it wasn't 
uh, as big of an issue, but certainly since Prudhoe Bay's discovery, mm-hmm. um, it has allowed us, as, as was pointed out, we have not had an income tax uh, and we're the only state that pays its residents or shares the wealth uh, of it. But as Cliff is pointing out, it's been in decline for decades and we haven't really addressed what does the future look like when um, it's no longer such a, a big portion of the economy. There's certainly hope that you know we'll find another big uh, oil field or we'll build mm-hmm. a natural gas pipeline or something, but I just don't see that happening. And wh- how are we going to prepare for the day when oil is no longer the main um, industry, so to speak? Yeah. And how about the individual Alaskan? What does oil mean to them? And I understand that this is definitely a moving target, a multifaceted question, but maybe in your mind, what does oil mean to the individual Alaskan? Um, Cody, do you want me to take first stab at that? This is Yeah, Tim. yeah, go ahead, yeah. Um, uh, I, I think... Um, what you know the most direct connection that that individual Alaskans have with oil is the permanent fund dividend that's paid every year mm-hmm. which Aaron referred to this is a check that's written to every man woman and child in the state um mo- you know most people have a sense of where it comes from it comes from oil or, or now invested oil income from the past and pr- probably a few people don't really know where it comes from but um that's the that's the most direct connection. There's another connection, and that's the fact that people can um, can have a lot of state services uh, without having to pay taxes. And that that's an indirect connection that, that doesn't really um, doesn't really occur to a lot of people. But that's another that's another way that it affects individuals, and it just you know it, it stimulates the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we we have have a lot of economic activity here because of the um, the work on the North Slope. Um, I do want to add that a lot of Alaskans are not familiar with the facts that we've set out so far in this podcast. A lot of Alaskans are not aware uh, of just how much oil production has fallen in our state. And the fact that no one, and and Tim Bradner is is substantially more knowledgeable about the day-to-day workings of the oil industry than I am, but I think that Tim Bradner will agree with me that um, no, no one predicts we're going to get back to the glory days ever again in Alaska of more than 2 million barrels a day of oil production. Hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, there's some hope that we'll you know, get higher than what we are uh, and get, you know, maybe, uh, I'd be interested in Tim's view whether he ever thinks we'll ever get over a, a million barrels a day of oil production in Alaska and how long that will last. One um, uh, oil company official told me if, a couple of years ago, he thought that there were only two big projects left to do that would actually happen on the slope. And those are the ones that are so famous, uh, 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 Willow and, uh, and, and Pika, hmm. and uh, that others would not occur. And this was actually an official of a, of a major oil uh, a company operating in Alaska. So Alaskans have to understand that we built, we hitched our, our wagon to oil and um, that wagon has slowed way down and can't carry the weight. And uh, that means in, in both in terms of the economy and, and, and the fiscal system, which I'm most directly responsible for now as, I'm a, as a state legislator. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alaskans need to think about that, what those facts mean real carefully. And like I said, I'm very interested in, in Tim's view of the future of the oil industry in Alaska as well. Well, I guess, I guess that's my cue to chime in. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, I think, uh, I think Cliff's right. We, we, you know, for long, you know, we were blessed by having the largest oil field ever discovered in North America found, you know, right on the North slope of Alaska. And, mm-hmm. um, and it, it happened on state owned lands, which meant that the royalties as long with the taxes went to the state treasury. But when Prudhoe was discovered, there were other oil fields around it that were smaller, uh, you know, mega fields by by U.S. national standards, but still nothing compared with Prudhoe Bay. But ever since then, Alaskans have been hoping that, you know, we'll find another Prudhoe Bay. The most recent manifestation of that was all the debate nationally over Anwar, which is the uh, national Arctic National Wildlife Range in northeast Alaska. Mm-hmm. Very attractive geology. And for years, people have been convinced that there's another Prudhoe Bay lurking out there. It just has to be has to be drilled and, and discovered. But it's you know for a lot of reasons, political reasons, we're not going to be drilling in Anwar anytime soon, and probably never. Um, so I think I think the uh, the, the prospects of the geology are that the, the large finds like Prudhoe Bay are not going to be there. There could be a number of small fields, and and right now there's a couple of. Um, as Cliff mentioned, a couple of promising um, new projects that are underway. There's a project called PICA, which is on state lands, and then a bigger project, which is has gotten national notoriety, and that's called Willow. It's on federal lands nearby uh, the parts of the North Slope where they are producing fields. Um, those, uh, the PICA field is under construction, but Willow is still under litigation, and it has to clear. There has to be a court decision probably in November. Uh, to decide whether that's going to proceed to, um, you know, to proceed to production. But even those two fields, they will they will make a nice bump in oil production for a while. But they, they they're not the Prudhoe Bay's. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll we will have new um, oil fields discovered, but nothing like what we've seen in the past. And I think um, the, the state of Alaska's uh, petroleum economists, you know, their long term outlook out of 10, 15 years is really that our oil production was, even with these new discoveries, will remain about the same about where it is now. Mm-hmm. So what, what we have, what you see is what we have. Um, I have a, a, a more direct question. I'm not the yeah. host, co-hoster here, but I would like, <laughs> Tim, Tim, what, what level of oil production do you, per, on a daily basis, do you think will ever be the highest in Alaska again? Will we ever get to it? Like I said, do you, Tim, do you think we'll get ever get to a million barrels a day of Alaska oil production? If so, how long would that last? Uh, Cliff, I think it's it's possible, but I, I think it, it's it's probably unlikely because we the um, the Willow Field, which I mentioned, uh, you know, is projected to produce one hundred and eighty thousand barrels a day at peak. Of course, that means it's going to ramp up and then it'll start its own gradual decline. The PICA field will produce at first about 80,000 barrels a day, then maybe if they move to a phase two, which has not yet been decided about the same amount. So these um, these might bump us up to, um, uh, and remember there'll be a ramp up and then a ramp down, but this might bump us up to um, 600,000. We're at 500,000 now. This might um, bump us up to 600,000, uh, maybe you know, a, a very optimistic view, maybe six fifty, possibly even seven hundred thousand. But I can't see anything that would get us to a million. Um, people, you know, people had hopes for Anwar that we'd be allowed to drill on Anwar. We might 
make a big a big find there. That that might have done it. Uh, but even even Anwar, the geologists actually are are divided over the, the the geologic prospects of Anwar, despite what the politicians say. Uh, so I I, th I think the um, answer to your question, Cliff, is it's probably problematic. So taking this back to the PFD, every year so many Alaskans have an opinion about the PFD, how it's not enough money, how we should be receiving more money. Do you think that that's a productive way of thinking about the PFD? Or is there another more productive way of thinking about it? Uh, I, I think uh, the, uh, the amount of the, obviously everybody would like to have more in the PFD, but it's only in the last two or three years, three or four years, really, that we become, this topic um, has become hotly debated. For many years, you know, before the PFD became uh, a substantial amount of money, we had very modest evidence and nobody ever complained about it. You know, they were, they were quite happy to get their smaller check. And um, now the checks have become bigger and, and perhaps people just think there ought to be more. Mm. Okay. Cliff, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, I actually helped create the Permafund Dividend. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm staring up at a picture of myself uh, with uh, Jay Hammond. I, I always like to look at this photo in part because I, ha I have brown hair in the photo. Uh, <laughs> but back when, back when the... Uh, when it was a picture taken shortly after the uh, uh, the legislature passed the dividend uh, legislation uh, back in 1982. It was a picture taken in the governor's office. Um, and my view is that we need a healthy, sustainable permanent fund dividend over the long run. Uh, along with everything, uh, a workable state uh, otherwise, that would include um, good schools, uh, good, good roads, uh, good public safety. Um, and, you know, good public is something that we have learned a lot in the last few years with the ravages of COVID, uh, good public health. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, and I'm not for having a giant dividend uh, one year and, a, you know, a very small one the next year. Uh, I would like to uh, have a, a system in which we have more predictable and sustainable dividends over the long run and more revenues for things, like I said, good roads, good schools, and good public safety. Uh, and uh, that's what I ran on and, uh, you know, went on, and I continue to offer uh, and, and my constituents and work for. And I hope we can uh, get a, a closer to those goals, uh, achieving those goals. Uh, and uh, But I, I do think that um, the permanent fund dividend has got to be seen uh, is a, a part of, of the state of Alaska's uh, whole fiscal system. And mm -hmm. we have to uh, make sure all the parts are working. Uh, and that, and you know, it's no secret that I have, and, and well known, and uh, that I have uh, proposed uh, and urged our state to uh, get more revenues. And I have, you know, urged and, and put forward legislation to increase uh, taxes in the oil industry, as well as to bring in a higher earner tax on um, our high, highest uh, earnings Alaskans to help um, uh, provide revenues uh, and allow us to have a, a healthy and sustainable fiscal system in good state. I mean, I think Cliff is spot on. I, I agree with 100% of what he's saying. And that is to me, we need to see a healthy state, not just a healthy dividend um, that you know we need to have good roads we need to have good schools if you look at the statistics uh, for alaska 
there's some pretty startling uh, revelations. I think we need a good, um, edu- you know, post-secondary education system. You know, for decades now, we've had this what's called the brain drain, where the brightest uh, young Alaskans are leaving the state and for the most part are not coming back. Hmm. And so to me, we're losing out on an investment in our youth by doing that. And so uh, all the things that Cliff, Cliff has said, I fundamentally agree with. Um, you know, another thing I was thinking about, uh, about your previous question also about what does the future look like for uh, oil discoveries and is there going to be another big find? Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a bumper sticker that I used to see when I was a kid. And it said, you know, Lord, let us find the next big oil discovery. This time I promise not to piss the money away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there is that sentiment. There is yeah. that, you know, um, that's out there. But, yeah, it's only been in the last couple of years that there has been this debate, I think, since 2016 or 2017 when the formula was changed, that there was this perception that somehow Alaskans weren't getting their full PFD, which is not the case. I think the permanent fund was always put there not just to pay out dividends, but to fund state government and you know, we, we continue to see the fund grow, and that has been a huge success story, uh, you know, the, the amount that it has grown to with largely outside of Alaska investment um, to bring that money back. But we need to, we're at that point now where we need to have a real honest discussion about what are sensible taxes, what is a sensible number for uh, the PFD, and then what's in an amount that state government can use to create good infrastructure, good roads, good schools, all of that. Mm-hmm. And Aaron, you think that among the other repercussions, if those things happen, then that brain drain will stop? I don't think it'll ever completely stop uh, okay. just by the nature of, of our, our state and population and, and you know, the, what certain people are, you know, specialties and interests. We're, you know, we have such a transient nature in Alaska of, of population to begin with mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that you're going to see out migration. But I think we could certainly, um, sl- you know, slow it down or reduce the numbers Um I think we're towards the bottom uh, in the United States of states that, you know, young people that are born there are still living in. Hmm. Uh, I was I, just to comment about the people uh, perceptions of the dividend the, and the debate over the, the level of the dividend. It's only to some extent our state's politicians are responsible for this in recent years. Uh, as I mentioned, for many years, we went with fairly modest dividends and no nobody ever questioned it. There really was never any, you know, much debate over it. But a disturbing, as a, as a disturbing trend to me was in the past four or five years, people began running for office on promising a higher dividend. Mm-hmm. And it was in the context of, um, of a reinterpreting or interpreting and applying an old formula that has been in state law for a couple of decades, which is really pretty obsolete. But the bottom line is, is politicians were going around campaigning on the promise of a higher dividend. 
kind of reminds you of Rome in the old when the, you know, the people currying favor with the masses would promise more goodies and more bread. And that's kind of what we have going on here. And it's, it's become a serious problem in our legislature. Cliff will attest to this, that over the past two or three years, um, the debate over the size of the dividend at the end of the legislative session, uh, as the budget is finalized, in which all the other current important legislation is pending, you know, it kind of takes all the oxygen out of the state capital building, and that's all people can focus on mm. is this argument over the size of the dividend. So a lot of other important legislation never gets done because of that. That's why people are just sick of this, and they'd like to find some way just to end it, you know, to finish the discussion about the dividend so we can get on to other business up here. Mm -hmm. So I, I think in a way it's sort of, it, it has really uh, kind of screwed up, skewed our politics up here. Mm -hmm. um, and we, um, in, in normal states, you know, people pay taxes and, and um, the political process works that the, uh, the, the budget is determined by um, elected representatives paid for by people who pay taxes and they keep an eye on, on the budget, the mm -hmm. eye on the legislature. But now, you know, oil pays the taxes and this dividend is just a free handout. So it's, it's, it's going to be very difficult to undo or change, I think. Tim, I have a question for you real quick. You mentioned, you know, these politicians that will promise bigger dividends and they brought the dividend discussion within I guess the wider Alaska political discussion, do you think that if they hadn't done that, if those politicians hadn't, you know, brought up the amount of the dividend, then it wouldn't have put that idea into Alaska's general population? I, I think so. Okay. Um, it, in, it was in, remember, recall it was in a different context. It was in the context of how we interpret this archaic formula that we now we we have to redo that formula in some way that that's that's become the hot button uh, in the legislature as, as Cliff will will speak to. But the the you know below that is how much is the dividend going to be, and mm -hmm. um, uh, we've had in the past two years because simply we, we we just haven't had had the money to pay a big dividend. So uh, there, there's a lot of political jockeying at the end of the legislative session. But at the, at the end of the day, the legislature has done the courageous thing of, of just legislating the amount of the dividend based on what we can afford. And that's, that's healthy. That's good. But it's not the way. It's a very sloppy way to run this thing. Mm. And, and the, the downside of that is that it, it results in a lot of needed legislation having to do with education and public safety, public, public safety never getting the proper attention because legislators are so preoccupied with this dividend debate. Hmm. But we, I mean, we, we are showing some progress in it in the last two years. The, um, we've legislated the dividend based on what we could afford. And um, uh, that's healthy, but it's, it's really, there, there's gotta be better ways to run this thing and, and make it, you know, have a more nuanced discussion about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and there's another point to understand here, and I just had lunch with somebody who just moved here from the lower 48 in June, and uh, I said, and is now working in politics in Alaska, and I said, congratulations, welcome to Alaska. Uh, this is the, the state with the most complicated fiscal politics in the country. <laughs> uh, uh, and, I, and I say that because of how many sides we have. Uh, 
we have, uh, and I agree with Tim that we that we have an unusual fiscal politics here. Like I said, the most complicated in the country, and that's because of th three factors. Uh, the biggest factor, which Tim has suggested or said, is the permanent fund dividend, but the permanent fund and the oil, and oil taxes as well have also contributed in, uh, to making Alaska the place, the state with the most complicated fiscal politics in the country. And one way of seeing how complicated they are uh, and how, you know, you're different, it's different from this uh, person I had lunch with has, you know, lived and worked in, you know, Utah, Oregon, Colorado. I said, you know, this, this ain't any of those states. Um, this is the Alaska House of Representatives, the body in which I serve, is the only um, uh, legislative body in the world in which both the majority and minority caucuses are composed of Democratic, Republican, and independent membership. Hmm. That just blows the mind of people who know politics to any degree uh, in other states and, and, you know, are only familiar with, you know, New York or California or, like I said, Oregon, Utah and Colorado, those three of the states that this, this my lunch guest had, uh, companion had worked the most in. And Cliff, do you think that that makes it more dysfunctional or functional or do you think that that just adds a needed variety? Well, I don't know it needed variety. It helps make it very complicated, and it it requires um, both um, skill and will to negotiate okay. and and, okay. and get and navigate because it is very complicated and difficult here. I I would say, Cody, I, I would think it's healthy because it, it, okay. we don't have the kind of rigid partisan, uh, you know, lockdown party lockdown in, in our politics, some would, some would just probably argue against that. But I think a place like California or New York, uh, where you, you know, the, the party lines and the partisan lines are so rigid and so difficult to, to navigate that um, here, here we have coalitions are quite common. We have one in the House and one in the Senate. Uh, there's a, a more traditional Republican minority in, uh, in both in the, in, in, I'm sorry, in the majority in the House, and it happens to have the leadership right now. But, um, but I think coalitions are are really the norm in Alaska. Hmm. Um, over the years, we've we've it's not it's not we've quite frequently we've had coalition leaderships in both bodies. Okay. Um, so I think it's healthy. At least I I think it's led to some healthy debate. Okay. If I could, I'd like to comment a little bit more on the permanent fund dividend, though. Yeah. I think uh, the permanent fund dividend is is really quite remarkable. We're the only place in the world, really, where we've done something like this and made it and established rules that govern it, even though it's it's debated. Uh, but there are rules and procedures, and it's and we haven't had corruption with the permanent fund. Um, Quite remarkable when you look at other other places like Venezuela, who who uh, have oil funds or the Middle East, and there's a lot of corruption, a lot of a lot of leakage out. But in this case here, the permanent fund acts as kind of like a guaranteed income, and it particularly helps lower income people because it's kind of a safety net, and it provides it gives people a, a way to uh, when the dividend comes around. Um, you know, it gives people a way to pay their bills and catch up on medical bills and buy needed things they need, mm -hmm. you know, pay fuel bills. Um, so it's it's quite quite a, a good thing in that standpoint. 
That, that said, there's also a lot of higher income Alaskans who really don't need a permanent front dividend. And um, it would seem to me that a logical way to solve this problem, if, if there's a scarcity of money, is simply reserve the dividend to lower income Alaskans. But the politics of that get very intense. And um, uh, it would be very difficult, I think, to actually pull something like that off. But that would be, that would be, I think, in my mind, the proper way to do that. Okay. And Tim, you've been writing about Alaska's natural resources since 1966. Is there a difference? <laughs> that, that makes me feel young. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a difference in how you wrote about it then versus how you write about it now? Well, not really. I mean, I, I the first oil story, and I really didn't know very much about the industry at the time. The first oil story I wrote about was the early uh, North Slope exploration that led up to Prudhoe Bay. And, uh, and I was a reporter at the, at the Fairbanks newspaper at the time and very young and inexperienced. And, and in those days, we were all excited about new things that were happening in Alaska. And, and I want to mention something uh, before we get too far. But the, the discovery of oil on, on the North Slope and how it could transform the state was, was um, very much on people's minds. And, um, and that, that was, you know, one of the exciting things for young persons why it being in the state was um, things were happening here and it was because you know new natural resources were being discovered and people had a feeling that would transform the state but something else was going on too and i and, and aaron will have some thoughts about this but the other remarkable we, we've done a lot of good things in alaska and uh one of the other the most remarkable things we did is we settled our alaska native land claims issues Mm -hmm. where the original Alaskans had felt that they, they, they had a, a, a right to use and to own a substantial amount of land that had been taken by the federal government and others. And we, we solved that uh, just about the time we had oil. And um, we, we, you know, we had oil discovered. And that, and that was quite a remarkable achievement in its own right. And I think a lot of people haven't um, really recognized the importance of that. That's become very important in our state economy now because the... Um, the Alaska Native corporations that were formed, um, uh, you know, have become a part of our, an important part of our state economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Aaron, do you have any more to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think Tim's absolutely right. Uh, it was kind of a remarkable moment in time when the discovery at Prudhoe Bay happened, and it did expedite. Uh, Alaska Native land claims. They were certainly going on before that. They're kind of a natural outgrowth of Alaska becoming a state. And the concern over some pretty, what today you could only categorize as uh, scary um, economic proposals with the land, the two big ones being the Project Chariot, which would have mm -hmm. detonated seven uh, atomic bombs near uh, the village of Point Hope to create the northernmost ice-free port mm -hmm. and the fallout that the nuclear fallout that would have occurred there. Um, the other one, another big one was the uh, the Rampart Dam, which would have basically created the largest hydroelectric dam, I think, in the world. Uh, China did this about 15 years ago. Okay. Uh, but it would have flooded 10 interior uh, Athabascan villages 
hmm. um, along the Yukon. Luckily, neither of these went through, but having all those pieces kind of line up, the discovery of oil allowed the state to be able to settle its portion of land claims. You had a favorable president at the time. There was also um, the uh, OPEC oil embargoes that were looming large. So, you know, the United States needed uh, to start producing petroleum um, for its security is one big thing. So it was very fortuitous, but I think it has also um, masked a larger problem of, as um, Cliff has said, there's really, it boils down to one fundamental question in Alaska, and that's who stays and who pays. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, how do we support the services that we need in our state and how do we get the revenues to do that? Mm -hmm. So in the email I originally sent everyone, I asked a question, a question that you, Aaron, actually workshopped out of a worse question that I had. Aaron's better question is, what will happen when oil is no longer economically viable for the economy of the state of Alaska? And I wonder, Aaron, have you given that question any thought? Uh, yeah, I think about it every day. <laughs> okay. Um, I, 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 I think that we're, we, we have to solve this question. And my hope is that we'll grow up. And what that what I mean by that is that all Alaskans will be contributing in some way, shape, or form to the uh, the economy of our state, and, and by some sort of taxation. Nobody wants taxes. I understand that, but it should cost everybody a little bit of something. We should all have skin in the game because, as it sits now, we don't. And I think it shows in the people that we're electing uh, to represent us because they just keep spinning their wheels. And there becomes this apathy where um, I remember watching an interview um, that was done for the, a program called the Alaska Review in 19, I think it was about 1976. And there was a representative out of Fairbanks, I think his name was Dick Randolph, and that exact question was posed what happens when you know it becomes no longer viable his answer was well when we've developed everything and and it's um it's uh it's gone or or you know we can't do it anymore well i'll be gone so it'll be somebody else's problem to deal with hmm, okay that was kind of his answer just ride it out if we can just ride out my my career pass pass it on to the next generation kick the can down the road yeah well you know if i could contribute something to that that's that's sort of the old alaska tradition you, you know the, the gold prospectors came up here after during the, the in, at the turn of the 1890s big gold discoveries they made their fortune they moved they moved out of state maybe some of them left some family here and they contributed a bit but the, the, the boomer mentality, uh, more recent variations of that during the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, a lot of people came up here, made a lot of money and left. 
and uh, yeah, some stayed and some made investments and continued to live here, and that was a good thing. But that that's been the kind of the economic cycle cycle of the state boom and bust, uh, and how do we create a, a a normal economy is kind of what I think Aaron's uh, Aaron's getting at. Mm -hmm. um, okay. What what I think will happen at some point. And, and, you know, the logical end point of all this is that the oil will run down. I don't think the oil will ever completely stop because oil fields have a way of lasting for years and years and they just kind of dribble on. So we'll always have a little bit of oil income, uh, but it's not, it's not going to be on the scale that we have now. And the jobs and the employment will not be on the scale that we have now. Uh, so our economy will have to diversify it. It will. You know, we'll have some mines that are developed. Our fishing industry is 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 healthy in one sense because it's it's a sustainable resource if it's well managed. But um, but that's that, that's important. Tourism, which takes advantage of another natural resource, our scenery, mm -hmm. is 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 doing well. But it doesn't create a lot of high high paying jobs. Um, but I think we'll figure this thing out one way or another. If, if there's one thing that I think we need to do, it's to create and sustain a strong university here that'll, if there's any one thing we could do to, to slow the drain of talent out of the state, it would be that. Mm, okay. And I think we've, we've not done as well in that category as we, as we could have. Um, a strong university gives people a reason to stay here. I agree with Tim. So, uh, uh, I, I, first of all, I want to say that oil will, will slow down and become smaller without going away in Alaska. Uh, and I think that, uh, we need to adjust to that. When I was a boy, uh, Alaska did not have a significant oil industry. All it had was some, you know, uh, small, uh, production, very small production in Cook Inlet and people in Alaska saw a, a thin economy and they often felt poor. Um, our, since then, our tourism industry has grown and we have a uh, uh, more uh, substantial mining industry than we did a long time ago. Uh, but so we need to understand that the oil industry is going to be declining in Alaska for decades. It will continue to decline. Hmm. And part of our response needs to be to improve our education at both K through 12 in the at university levels and because uh, education is the engine of economic development. When the permanent fund was created in 1976, um, my brother used to serve in the, in the state legislature and he was there when when the uh, the uh, constitutional amendment was adopted. And, and my, my brother made a, a, a remark that I think illustrated how simple people thought about it and how thoughtful and how wise people thought about it. People asked, uh, what is the idea of saving part of the oil revenue for the future all about? Why do it? And the answer, which the legislators who had just voted on it said was, well, it's, you know, we, we all know oil is going to run down someday. And this is just creating a savings account that we can sustain our state government for the day, the time oil runs out. Mm -hmm. And people said, oh, okay, that makes sense. And they voted for the permanent constitutional amendment. They created the permanent fund. And in a way, that has played out. I mean, we are doing that. Um, there's a couple of complicated mechanisms we're doing it. We're, we're using a, uh, a college endowment 
percentage of market value. The mechanics of it can get a little bit complicated, but but essentially that's happened. You know, we are now paying for 70 to 80% of our state budget with, with oil, whether it's saved oil uh, through the permanent fund or direct oil through revenues. So the vision of the, uh, the legislators in 19, and the people who, uh, who pushed through the permanent fund in 1976 has played out brilliantly, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. But now what do we do now? We're still arguing over the size of the dividend. Yeah. Well, just one thing that I did want to add to that is any time that the whatever the size of the dividend is, when it goes out to individual Alaskans, there's a portion of that total amount that is going to get captured by the federal government, Uncle Sam, in federal income taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if that money is used by the state of Alaska to invest in itself, say in an education system or whatnot, you're not losing that percentage, um, so to speak. So, you know, every year, hundreds of millions of dollars, well, maybe not hundreds, but tens of millions of dollars um, is leaving the state going into the federal coffers uh, through income taxes when that could be be put towards, you know, the infrastructure of our state. Mm-hmm. Um, I can j- jump in. What I would um, add is uh, the permanent fund got created in 1976, and I, you know, was uh, able to vote for it at the time. Uh, one of the tens of thousands of Alaskans, and I've researched it extensively uh, for uh, uh, some uh, a chapter of a book that I co-authored with uh, Greg Erickson. I co-authored some chapters, uh, I authored, co-authored some chapters of books. I, but what the research has shown is there, there was a, uh, a number of reasons people voted for the permanent fund. The, the simplest, shortest answer, summary you could give of why the permanent fund got created was Alaskans wanted to save some of the oil money for the future without a complete agreement of how it's going to be used in the future. And everything, as I have written with Greg Erickson, Everything from dams to daycare centers to dividends were dangled in front of the people of Alaska is a reason to create it. Cody, Cody if, if I could offer something added to what Cliff just said. Yeah. We, we had, we had a, a huge debate in our state, uh, focusing on the state legislature in the years immediately following the um, adoption of the permanent fund as to how it would be managed and, in effect, what it was, what it was for. And, and the two sides of that debate is, what, should we use the money to build projects like dams and, and uh, big industrial development projects to diversify our economy? And the other part of it is, should we just invest it like a trust fund out of state and then use the income for some as yet undetermined purpose in the future? And we chose the second option quite remarkably. Um, we we uh, we turned by by a very narrow vote, by the way, in the legislature. We discarded the idea that we would build a lot of pork, pork barrel projects, construction projects with this money, and instead we would just we would just trust the judgment of future generations, invest the money in the stock market, trust the judgment of future generations as to what the money would be for. Mm-hmm. And the dividend, you know, was was really kind of a small part of that because the idea of the dividend was it would create a direct stake for Alaskans to have a piece of it so that they would watchdog and make sure the politicians don't blow it. And that was Governor Hammond's idea when, when he first proposed the dividend. 
And I think that's been a brilliant success. So, so the, you know, the, the, the original purpose of the dividend, creating a, a, a citizen watchdog mm -hmm. of the politicians and handling the permanent fund so they don't blow it, that's worked very well. Quite remarkable that the um, people in the 1970s and the legislators decided to trust the future, to let future generations decide what, you know, what the fund is for and how we're going to use it ultimately. It's been quite successful also. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, as much as we we, um, we, we can argue about some of the near-term problems we're having, um, I think in the long run, it's been quite successful. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but 85% of Alaska's economy is based on oil. And in some years, it can be as high as 90%. Uh, Cody, if I can, if I can, if I can offer a correction here. Okay. Yeah. Eighty-five uh, percent of the state's revenues to support the state general fund has been dependent on oil, and it goes up and down. In some years, it's lower, but the economy itself is is actually fairly diversified. Okay. The employment, uh, fishing industry is very big. Tourism is big. Mm -hmm. The Alaska Native corporations. Uh, are, are growing in economic strength and they're, you know, they're big employers. They're very broadly diversified in the state. So I think our economy, uh, the, the pure economic dependence on the oil industry is small because the oil industry itself doesn't really employ a lot of people. Okay. It pays very well for the people it does pay. Um, the oil economic impact is strengthened by the fact that it supports so much of the state government and the, the uh, state employees and the spending of state employees, the state programs, projects. I mean, all that comes from oil. But I think the, 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 uh, the dependence on oil of, of the broader economy is, is much less. And I, I wouldn't hazard a guess. We had, um, there have been estimates in the past, but we, uh, we, uh, uh, it, it would not be anywhere near 60 or 70%, I don't think. Okay, okay. Looking broadly. Well, and one thing that, to add to that, which we really haven't discussed, is also how much of our economy is based on federal spending and investment. And we've seen that certainly in the last few years. Yes, tourism has grown, um, you know, uh, coming out of COVID. But the amount of money that our uh, federal elected representatives have been able to bring back to our state is is pretty significant. And that also, I think, is a good thing in one level, certainly seeing the federal investment, but how long is it is that going to last? Obviously, the federal government's always going to have play an important role in Alaska and employment. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, increased military spending and, and you know, the new ports that's being constructed in Nome and, and those those kinds of things. Um, but there could be a day where we're not seeing as much of that money coming. And then that also, how do we fill that hole, so to speak? Yeah. Um, I And I could jump in here. I, I agree that Aaron's point is absolutely right about the concerns about uh, the long run decline in federal spending or, or a potential, especially could be not be as high as it has been in some previous years. I also want to add that for our current year um, for the state spending, and I'm looking at the Alaska Legislative Finance Division's homepage right now, uh, their website, that 
the PUMV, uh, the percent of market value draw, which is the way the state of Alaska spends, sustainably spends per fund earnings in the budget, it's uh, uh, set to provide more money uh, for uh, the, the state and the oil revenue uh, this year, this current fiscal year, which is fiscal year 2024, uh, which runs from July 1st. Uh, 2023 to uh, through June 30th, 2024, mm -hmm. uh, and in some, and even with the higher oil prices this year, and I also want to add one other point, uh, 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 which is that our permanent fund earnings, uh, you know, go up and down, you know, with the vagaries of the financial markets, uh, and just like oil prices go up and down, and they were you know briefly negative in one corner of the oil market uh, for one you know one day early in the pandemic. The financial markets, you know, bounce all over, and uh, there's a lot of concern that in the next few years, and over the time, the state will draw money from the permanent fund in a way that will cause the permanent fund to shrink. And I also proposed a measure to help uh, prevent that. Uh, and I think that that uh, is an important topic for Alaskans to focus on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and uh, this this is Tim adding to what Cliff was saying. I think we. Um, we, we sort of have a a, a, a two-legged stool of what should be a third-legged uh, third legged stool to add stability. Oil revenue is one leg. Investment earnings of the permanent fund, the, the portion of it that comes to support the budget is another. What's missing is citizen, uh, citizen taxes and revenues paid, which is really the most stable of all. If you look all across the states, uh, there is a remarkable stability unless there's an economic collapse in a state. Mm -hmm. Remarkable stability in, in uh, individual income taxes, uh, sales taxes, provides a predictable source of revenue in, in, in most states. We don't have the kind of uncertainty that we've had in oil in Alaska with oil prices being volatile as they are. And potentially in the future with uh, financial markets and, and, and earnings from investment. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we're still vulnerable, <clears throat> and I think this is a problem. This is something we have to fix to really provide a stable structure. So I'm doing my, my best to keep up with you guys, you know, like it was mentioned earlier, this is a very complicated issue. So I'm going to ask my next question and let me know if it's applicable to what we're talking about. I feel like it is, but if it's not, just let me know and we'll move on. So President Biden recently canceled seven oil and gas leases in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. What does that mean and how will it affect Alaska's oil production? Cody, uh, can, can I jump in? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't think it means anything. Okay. Um, I think, you know, Alaskans have uh, wanted to drill in Anwar for years. It isn't, I mean, after all, it is a national petroleum reserve. It's not an Alaskan, I mean, I'm sorry, it's a national uh, refuge, wildlife refuge, mm -hmm. the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It's, it, it was created by Congress. It's for the nation. It's not an Alaska refuge. And, and it's for the nation to decide what to do with Anwar, not Alaska. It's not state lands. And I think Alaskans have never really kind of come to grips with that. Um, the fact that there were seven leases uh, in Anwar that were ironically owned by the state of Alaska is sort of a quirk of politics. Um, 
Uh, the reason why Anwar has stayed closed so long is because uh, Congress protected it. And uh, the conservation groups, which look, watch carefully uh, what happens with the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, were very politically adept in, in, uh, in encouraging Congress to do that. And then, you know, things happened in politics and, and um, our, our very influential state delegation <laughs> was able to get legislation through, which allowed for a federal lease sale. Ironically, no major oil companies bid for leases in Anwar. Okay. There was the state of, state of Alaska bidding uh, through the form of a state development corporation and a couple of small independents. Uh, the leases were one during the Trump administration. Uh, they were issued. Um, it quickly became apparent that even under the Trump administration, the politics would be so difficult in actually doing anything in Anwar with litigation and, and delays that the uh, the two private two small private companies withdrew and gave their leases back to the government. Mm, okay. But the state of Alaska leases were you know we have a Republican governor who supports uh, Anwar development and drilling is very popular politically up here. So the um, th the fact that the seven leases remain owned by the state there it was sort of a political thing that they remained. But finally, the Department of Interior, after Biden was elected, just just canceled the leases. Now, there's litigation, or there will be litigation over whether they they did that properly, and that's the right thing to do. But the fact remains that um, even if the leases exist, it's going to be very difficult to get any investment to uh, explore and actually develop those leases because the politics are so toxic over there. Mm, okay. Any, any company wanting to invest is going to look at the situation and say. I'm going to tie my money up for years and spend a lot of money in court fights. Why do it? So, mm -hmm. and I'll also add, quite frankly, that there are divisions of opinion among geologists as to really how good it is. You know, Alaskans are convinced that Edwar is a big oil tank, and the next Prudhoe Bay is sitting over there. But actually, there's a, the geology is very complicated, and it may be there, it may not be there. Hmm. Okay, that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, it was it was help. It was clarifying. It was definitely clarifying. Yeah. I read that there's an argument to be made about Anwar, drilling Anwar, negatively affecting Alaska Native communities who rely on oil production. Aaron, I wonder if you can weigh in on this. Is there any validity to this claim? The claim that by not allowing drilling an Anwar that it negatively affects Alaska natives? Is I think so, yeah. Um, no, I don't think there's any validity to that. I think that's a bit of a, a smokescreen. I mean, um, it's, you know, there, this is a highly divided, you know, the thing is, there's there's multiple opinions on whether Anwar should be open. There are yeah, yeah. Alaska native groups or corporations that believe it should happen. And then there are other villages and tribes that don't. Uh, even we, we saw this with, uh, even with the Pebble Mine. I mean, now there was, I think it was a little more clear that most Alaska Native uh, entities did not support, uh, you know, creating the Pebble Mine, but there were some that, that did. Okay. Um, so it's it's a complex issue. There's no doubt about it. But I, I agree with 
with Tim that it doesn't really, um, it didn't make a big difference. It's sort of wish fulfillment. Again, it's this like big shiny thing instead of actually focusing on what are the realities for our state and how do we move forward? Okay. Okay. Yeah. In, in, in my opinion, uh, Cody, it, it, Anwar was kind of a diversion. You know, we, we, uh, we, we sort of got all excited. We thought that might be the solution to all our, all our problems if another Prudhoe Bay could be found. Yeah. But it, it's it, even even if the permission had been given to drill, it would have been years before uh, probably there was a discovery made and the, and the fields were developed. In the meantime, there'd be a lot of lawsuits and continuing controversy. Uh, but I, and I think in the long run, it was just a diversion of uh, away from other pressing problems. Like, like, like Cliff has been speaking to, how do we do true diversification of our fiscal system, how do we diversify our economy? Mm -hmm. So I have one last question for everyone, and that is, in a future, if and or when Alaska has to move away from oil production, the resource that has pretty much defined Alaska since almost statehood, how might that affect Alaskans on a psychological level? And I, and I understand that this is more of a philosophical question. Well, can I take a shot at that, Cody? Yeah. I don't think it's going to affect Alaskans very much at all, because I'm not sure that most Alaskans really understand oil. And, and it's, it's complicated. You know, how, how important is it to the economy? Uh, some people think it is is important. If you live in a fishing coastal village uh, where the uh, fishing industry is important, you don't think much about oil at all. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, the PFD, there's sort of an indirect connection. But I, I think if the, I don't think oil will ever go away because the, as I mentioned, these fields have a, have a way of producing, drilling out, dr drilling oil production out for decades. But I, I think it'll be less and less important. But I, I think um, other things will come along, um, and I think if we're smart, you know, we will invest. We will use that permanent fund, which is a, a real gift, a real wise decision to save it for the future and not blow it. Mm -hmm. Use it wisely to sustain our our um, public services, and uh, and do some wise diversification of the economy. Meanwhile, educate our young people, give them a reason to stick around. Mm. So I'm, I'm hopeful in the long run. Um, this is Cliff. Uh, I believe Alaskans would benefit if they understood that oil production has been falling in Alaska, like I said, for uh, close to 35 years and will never get back to what it was. I think that it'd be great if Alaskans could come to a more informed understanding of uh, what uh, oil means now in Alaska and is likely to mean. That would be a helpful and healthy thing in Alaska. Yeah, this is this is Aaron. I mean, my my hope for the future is that, yeah, that people have a better understanding of what oil, the role oil plays in our state, and how that is in decline and has been for a long time. And I hope that we can take the wealth that has been created with it and invest it into our education system and prepare the future generations for the new realities of what the kinds of skills and jobs we're going to need 
uh, going forward. So that includes public education, that includes our university system, and that also includes investing in vocational training um, as well. We, mm -hmm. We've done a pretty poor job of that, and our nation as a whole has done a, has done a poor job. Um, you know, in some ways, there's never been a better time to be a young person graduating from high school uh, because of the, the, the number of jobs that are available with uh, the right kind of training that need to be filled. I mean, we're having a hard time filling jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, those are all the questions I have for you guys. I want to thank all of you, Aaron, Cliff, and Tim, for spending this time with me and also lending your expertise. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.